This morning we're in the second, last, second to last chapter of the book of Acts. We've been journeying since Easter uh, through the book of Acts. We've taken an occasional break here and there. Uh, last week we were, were out of it. Uh, next week we'll be out of it. And then we'll wrap up Acts 28 on December 30th. Um, but I've tried each, each time we've been in Acts. Um, I, I think we've only had one other talk that was during Advent itself. And uh, tried to see, without hopefully doing too much um, uh, violence to the text, of trying to see if there's a way that, that our theme of Advent uh, is there in the text. And, and in this, today's chapter, in Acts chapter 27, it actually works um, fairly perfectly because they're in the storm. And there's this word, and we'll talk about this word that shows up a few times, but it, it, there's this word that Paul uses um, to the sailors and that Luke uses about Paul. And, and this word essentially could mean be, be of good cheer or be cheerful. And it's not usually what you think of when you think of joy. If I were to say to you, how would you define joy? You, you might give me some spiritual answer, you know, an unabiding, you know, whatever you hope. You know. but, but, but you may not say something as trivial sounding as cheerfulness or be of good cheer. In fact, if we're honest, we almost don't like the expression cheer up. Because usually when we hear it, it's not when we need to hear it. Things are not feeling so good. And someone says, hey, cheer up. Well, why don't you cheer up, you know? <laughs> I got your cheer up. And be of good cheer, as an alternate version of this expression, is really the kind of phrase that we hear around Christmas time, right? It's the most wonderful time. And friends are going, be of good cheer. It's the mo-. And you think, oh, yes. And so maybe in that context, it feels happy and, you know, be of good cheer. That's great. That maybe that's okay at the most wonderful time of the year, but the truth is when we're going through other experiences in life that don't feel like the most wonderful time of the year, how in the world can someone say, be of good cheer? We don't have to pretend what that might feel like this morning. How can we sit here this morning and say, be of good cheer? Boy, talk about a preacher out of touch with the world. How can you say that? There is an important need for grief. There is a kind of path to cheerfulness that, if you will, is a kind of shortcut to cheerfulness. It's a path to cheerfulness that seeks to avoid any and all kind of grief. That's not what we're talking about this morning. We're not talking about a kind of cheerfulness or or joy that says, all right, well, let's just pretend, la, 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 let's just pretend that everything's fine. Let's just ignore it. Let's just be ignorant. Let's just pretend. Let's keep our head in the sand. No. No, we're not going to do that. There is something very important about grief, and, and all of us, Maybe we've learned enough, thankfully, to the vocation of good counselors and spiritual directors uh, who've helped us understand, look, there's something important about giving voice to your grief. And the truth is, this is as old as the Psalms. The Church of England prays through the Psalm book every month. You can't skip over the hard stuff. You end up having to sing and pray phrases that put you in touch with the deepest, darkest parts of your soul and heart that make you cry out to God, make you lament. So there is a legitimate place for grief. And certainly the Bible's picture of cheerfulness cannot be one that circumvents grief, right? All right. All right. And yet, if we only 
dwell on the grief and never find our way to the biblical picture of joy and cheerfulness, if we live there, you know what we'll have is we'll have a life shaped by anxiety and fear. If we only kind of dwell in the morbidness or the horrors or the atrocities, if we live there and say, I just want to grieve, and you read Lamentations every day, and Psalm 22 is the only psalm you'll ever read, I'm a worm, God! You might find yourself all of a sudden living in this place of anxiety and despair. Maybe even fear. It's an unusual plague of our generation, this plague of anxiety. More and more people that I encounter, more and more experiences in our own lives, the older we get as parents, the more we sort of have this edge of seat tension about the world. And there's a part of us that says, well, maybe we could just medicate it. Maybe we can make ourselves forget about it, that, it, that if, we, if, if, we, if we sat in front of enough screens, if we, if we constantly looked at social media, if we kept channel surfing, if we kept browsing the web for better bargains or better whatever, maybe, maybe we can just sort of numb our souls to the underlying anxiety that is there. My wife was watching a TED Talk the other day by a, 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 a researcher, I think named Brene Brown, and she said, the trouble with trying to numb anxiety is we cannot selectively numb. So when you numb anxiety, guess what you also numb by default? Joy and hope. If you say, well, fine, I'll just sort of try to cut off the feeling of anxiety and fear or grief or says, I don't want it. Numb this, please. Give me that pill, please. Let me just take this. The unintended consequence of that just might be that you lose the capacity to hope and to rejoice and to be of good cheer. And you wonder what it is we are to do. How do we do this then? If I can't sort of take a shortcut to cheerfulness, and I can't sort of dwell here, then is there a way to, in the midst of an age of anxiety and fear, is there a way to find an abiding joy? Is there a way in a world that is uncertain? Is there a way in a generation riddled with fear? Is there a way to find an unshakable joy? Is there a place that we can really go to that says, yes, yes, be of good cheer? And here's why. Here's why. Acts 27, if you'll turn there with me, we'll start with verse 1 and then we'll skip around a little bit just to kind of flow through the story. But in verse 1 it says, And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And basically, Paul's traveling with some people on his way to Rome. If, if, just to kind of catch you up on the story, the second half of the book of Acts has been all about our hero named Paul. The first half was about Peter, now we're about Paul. And where else Peter was sort of the one God was using, the main figure about the church getting established in the Jerusalem area. Paul is the one that we're watching as the gospel begins to spread into, quite literally, uncharted territory. And it's only fitting that the end of Paul's journey is a sea voyage. Like so many ancient epics. Any literature fans in the room? Uh, Homer's Odyssey might, might be the first. Maybe there's more beyond that. But doesn't it seem that every great epic always is about a voyage? 
even the hobbits. And so skip down with me to verse 14. Here's Paul wrapping up his great adventure of carrying the gospel. And the Lord has told him that he's supposed to go to Rome. And so this is where he said he wants to announce to Caesar that Jesus is Lord, Caesar is not. Verse 14, but soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Now skip down again to verse 18. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. Now, part of a few of the verses that we had skipped, basically Paul had told them, hey guys, there's going to be some storms. You sure we want to do this? And they said, well, we don't want to winter over here. We need to make it over there. And it's possible that their motive for pressing through was profit. When you ask yourself, what gives a person hope to endure storms, some people might answer, profit. Right? And now that's not so evil. I think of it on a practical level. What if someone said, hey, I've got a job offer for you. It's going to be grueling hours. You're going to travel all the time. It's going to be miserable. We, we won't even be able to give you a laptop, but we have high demands of you. And the pay is going to be 15000 a year. You'd say, uh, I don't think I want to do that. But if someone says, oh, listen, this is going to be a grueling job and there's going to be lots of travel and you'll have to put up with you know, not as great equipment and all this stuff, but you know what? The pay when you're done with it is going to be $1 million. You'd say, okay, well, I, I, all right. How long? A year? You got it. I'm in. And there's something about knowing what's on the other side that makes you press through, right? For these sailors, they kind of thought, there's a storm, but we're going to press through because there's profit to be had. We've got grain here that once we sell it, it's going to be a good winter. We've got it. And so you might say that for these sailors, their source of confidence in the middle of a storm was the possibility of profit. Verse 18, since we were violently storm-tossed, they began to jettison the cargo, and on the third day they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. And when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Who's saying this? Who's saying this? Luke. Our hope, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Other translations say, and we lost all hope of salvation. Wait, we? Like you and Paul? <laughs> I thought you guys were like faith people. <laughs> One of the biggest misconceptions about faith is a person of faith never has doubt. Many, many Christian writers and Thinkers have talked about the close connectedness of faith and doubt. That indeed, unless doubt is the strongest, faith cannot be stronger. You sort of need this nagging sense of doubt for a faith to kind of rise through it. Here's Paul and Luke that are at a very real place wrestling with their despair, wrestling with their sense of hopelessness. A couple things about this text. We've talked already about the voyage and how you know, Luke is maybe drawing on some, some deeply held kind of epic themes of, 
of a voyage and the hero, is he going to make it to his place and what obstacles are going to come and all this stuff. Who's the, you know, are there going to be orcs or dragons or, you know, what's the, who are the things that are going to oppose him? And in this case, it's a storm and, and a storm for us is like, okay, cool, a storm. But a storm in the Hebrew literary mind is symbolic because th- this may sound funny, but the people of Israel were not seafaring people. They hated the sea. They, did, they didn't have ships. They didn't want to do it. In fact, the, the people who did have ships were all the nations that conquered Israel. They came in and invaded. And so for them, seeing a great fleet of ships on the horizon was like sea monsters coming to get them. And many of the prophets, if you've read some of the Old Testament passages and they're kind of puzzling about monsters coming from the sea or even John's vision in the book of Revelation about this thing from the sea and all this stuff, you're thinking, what's with that? It's all emblematic for Israel of of evil. The sea is a picture in the Hebrew mind of chaos and evil. It's the sea in the sort of primordial sense, this kind of, this this, um, pre-ordered kind of thing. The place of chaos. Think about in Genesis 1, the Spirit of God hovers over the waters. The earth was formless and void. You think about the, 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 the different images in the prophet books. The sea is a picture of the place of chaos, the place of evil. Not just because of the uncertainty that Israel had with the, the ocean or the, with the waters themselves, but because their enemies all came through it. So when we see a storm rising up to rock this boat and to, and to shipwreck this, this voyage, what you're seeing basically is the forces of evil opposing God and opposing his call on Paul, his mission from God. You're seeing the enemy begin to oppose it. Now even if we stopped right here and asked ourselves to think about this a little bit, It's not difficult to imagine ourselves on a ship with surging waves that remind us there are forces of chaos and evil in the world. There's something deeply wrong with this world that God at one point made and called good. The myth of the modern mind is that with enough technology and with enough progress and with enough political theory and with enough science, we can eliminate evil from the world. And so every time a tragedy happens, sad to say, it's a shock to a secular society. Because it it says the lie was wrong. The theory was wrong. You cannot on your own organize a sterile society that is just going to be totally clean and perfect. You can't marginalize, you can't suppress, you can't conquer, you can't fight, you can't defeat, you can't purge evil. The seas began to rage that day and Paul began to realize, wait a minute, something is dreadfully wrong. Forces of chaos and evil are opposing the people of God. And maybe even if we zeroed closer on a personal level, you might know that feeling. Have you ever been at the place in the brink of despair when a storm or a darkness was so great that you lost all hope of being saved. You came to the brink of it and you said, now what? Now what? There's no way. It's over. 
This, this has got to be the end. This is how it ends. And in the case of the perfect storm, it was. And all of us can think of moments in our life, places in our life. The, new, the gospel reading this morning was from Matthew's gospel where the, the, the wise men see a star and the star points them to this hope of the world. Contrast that with this verse, this text, where Luke says, the sky was so dark we couldn't even see the sun or the stars. Nothing to give us hope. Can the same God who bursts a brilliant star in the night sky to guide people be the same God that is sovereign over a dark sky where all hope is lost? Can the same God bring a brilliant star to guide and signal his hope and still be the God of the world even when the sky is dark and there is no sun and no star? Nothing. Paul goes on, if we pick up now in verse 21, and Luke says, Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Not quite an I told you so moment, but sort of. Yet now I urge you to take heart. Here's the word. Underline this word. Be encouraged. Take heart. However you... Uh, your translations say it, underline that phrase in your Bible if you would. Take heart. We'll come back to it. For there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood with me an angel of the God to whom I belong. I love how Paul, and we see this repeatedly in the scripture just as a rabbit trail, there is no abstract God, the God, a, a God. Why did God allow? There is none of, that God is not in the Bible. There is only the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God to whom Paul belongs. There's a big difference. We're not deconstructing the God of philosophy. We're talking about the, the intimately personal God to whom your life belongs. And Paul begins to say, he says, look, this God to whom I belong and whom I worship, he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart. There's the phrase again, underline it. Men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told, but we must run aground on some island. <laughs> you just said, it's going to work out. Don't worry. Be happy. Because the kind of cheer and joy that we find in God is not a joy that circumvents the pain, but a joy that sees us through it. It's not a joy that, that, that avoids the shipwreck, but it's a joy through it. The first thing I want us to see this morning in this text when we're asking ourselves this question about, well, how? How do we find a kind of joyful confidence? How in the world do we say, be of good cheer and have it be more than just a holiday song? How in the world? Firstly, because we say, have faith in God. <laughs> Odd timing. Have faith in God. I love Paul's use even here of um, these words to say have faith in God. 
I spent a few years around a lot of Christians who use the word faith a lot, but it was never faith in God. It was always faith for something. Have you ever heard Christians talk like that? I have faith for this miracle. I have faith for this provision. I have faith for an outcome. But do you know that's not how the New Testament talks about faith? It never talks about faith for. It talks about faith in. Because the object of our faith is a person, not an outcome. The object of our faith is a person and not an outcome. Faith is always in God, not for a result. If faith is for something, then it's utilitarian. It's just about what you can get out of it. Well, I need to have faith so that I can have that. I need enough faith for this. I need enough faith for this. I don't have enough faith for a Lexus, but I have enough faith for a Toyota Corolla. I don't have... Oh, brother, you better increase your faith. <laughs> Paul says, have faith in God. Now think about the imagery. You're in a ship that will not sink even though the physical ship you're in does. You're in Christ, Paul says. And because you're in Christ, you've been made righteous. Because you're in Christ, you've been blessed with all the spiritual blessings God has. Because you're in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit with you. Because you're in Christ, your faith in God situates you in Christ. And there's no better place to be. There's no safer, more secure place than that. And Paul says, look, I have faith For, nope, I have faith in God. This storm motif shows up in the Gospels. Of course, you can think of the time when the disciples were in the boat with Jesus and Jesus took a nap. And the the seas raged. Again, a very um, intentional picture of the forces of evil rising up in chaos and the disciples being terrified. And Jesus wakes up and he rebukes the storm to show that he's sovereign over it. And then he rebukes the disciples in, one of, in some of the gospel writers' versions of the story. Why? For your lack of faith in God. Peter walking on water, same thing, and begins to sink. Paul's saying, look, put your faith in God even when all hope is lost. There's still going to be a shipwreck, but you can find yourself being saved. Why? Because even though the seas rage with chaos and evil, God has been, is, and will ever be sovereign over the chaos. Genesis 1, from the beginning, when there's this this unformed sort of chaos in the seas, it's the Spirit who hovers over it. Jesus who calms the storms. Jesus who walks on the waves. Jesus, the Gospel writers are trying to show us, the one who is sovereign over this This is why in the book of Revelation, John has a picture of the new heaven and the new earth, and he says, and there was no more sea. (laughs) Now, I'm sorry if you read Revelation and you're a hyper-literalist, because you'll be really bummed that there won't be beach vacations in the new creation. (laughs) But what John is trying to tell us is that evil and its source will once and for all be done away with. There will be no more sea. And the one that we do see 
is a glassy sea, a calm, still, peaceful waters that make us think of Psalm 23's still waters that the Lord, our shepherd, makes us lie down beside. Think of it. Even when all hope is lost, faith can be placed in God who is sovereign over the chaos. Sovereign over all. The one who has defeated evil. The one who will finally end it all. In a very real way, this story is a bit of a metaphor of salvation itself. Because it's not until you come to that moment of saying, how can I be saved? It's over. This is the end. There's no way. It's not until you come to that moment that the gospel says, okay, well, are you ready now to put your faith in God? Have you fully realized the despair of this situation? Have you fully realized that there's no technology, there's no science, there's no advanced society that can eliminate evil, that it's only Jesus and the victory of God that conquers sin and death and evil? Have you now come to the end of yourself? Have you now realized that you have no hope for being saved on your own? This is a gospel moment. And it's only then that we begin to say, okay, okay, it's Jesus, the sovereign one, the saving one, sovereign over the chaos and the evil and the storms that rage. It's only in Him to put our faith. I think what begins to happen is when you have faith in God, you begin to find a joyful confidence. Maybe this word cheer is interesting, is difficult. Maybe your Bible translations say encouraged. And Paul says, be encouraged, be encouraged. It's true, he does say that. But the interesting thing about this, this Greek word, and, and, and fortunately we learned this tool that we could use to find out you know, where these words were first used and all that. In, in our wonderful seminary class, look at it, Rachel and Dee. And um, in digging a little bit, this word is first used in Plato and other Greek texts as this phrase, be of good cheer or be cheerful. Furthermore, it's only used five times in the whole New Testament. Once it's used in the book of James, where James says, if anybody's cheerful, let him sing songs. Well, that seems like a fine time to use that word. The other four times are used in Acts by Paul. One is when he's before one of the governors and he says, I'm cheerful to be able to present my case to you. I'm like, Paul, you are either kissing up or you're like the greatest <laughs> eternal optimist. The other three times this word is used in the whole New Testament is in this very chapter. In the middle of a storm. In the middle of an impending shipwreck. And he says, be cheerful. Hey, hey. Be cheerful. Hey, be cheerful. Why? Maybe we're supposed to see that cheerfulness is redefined. That cheerfulness is not about happiness or circumstances, nor is it about forgetfulness or being ignorant and unaware. But it becomes this joyful confidence that's the result of our faith in God. What's so interesting is the worse the storm gets in verse 38, you know the sailors eventually throw all their grain out <laughs> over the sea. 
possibly the very reason they pushed through to, to sail anyway, and now they ended up losing it. I wonder if something begins to happen to us the deeper this gets inside of our hearts, and we begin to say, you know what, I can unload some of the things I've been holding on to. I can begin to unload it. Let's, let's throw it off. I, I, I don't need, and maybe literally, maybe some of you literally, a la the $100 holiday, will begin to simplify and unload, literally. But if nothing else, I think there's something possible, there's a way to unload things even in an act of worship before God while still having them. Anyone ever read A.W. Tozer? He wrote a couple of great books, one of them, The Pursuit of God. Chapter 2 is called The Blessedness of Possessing Nothing. Anyone remember this? And he talks about Abraham. He says, Abraham had all things but possessed nothing. I like that. He had stuff. I mean, Abraham was rich. He was loaded. Nothing wrong with that. Abraham credited God with it. Abraham had all but possessed nothing. I think something begins to happen to you when this joyful confidence, this faith in God gets itself deeply rooted in you where all of a sudden you begin to unload and you begin to say, you know what? I don't really own any of this. <laughs> it's not mine. Thanks God for this house and thanks God for this stuff and thanks God for these children and thanks God for our lives and thanks God for breath and thanks for friends and thanks for possession. Thanks for all of it, but I don't own it. You, oh Lord, are the source of all. Yeah? I don't pretend that that's an easy place to get to. But it's a profoundly freeing place. Now, work with me for a little bit. This is very different than the Buddhist idea of nirvana. It's very different. It sounds like it in some ways. Because the, the, the theory goes that if you could, again, sort of enter the place where there is no more pain, then there's no more pain, but there's no more joy. There's just this. That's not the same thing at all. And Jesus is saying, I'm not asking you to empty your soul or empty your mind so that all of a sudden mm, you're unmoved by pain, unmoved by tragedy. You're just sort of... Mm. Jesus is saying you can care very deeply about one another. And you should. And you can care very deeply about the blessings that God gives us and you should. And yet... This faith in God tells us that we don't need to cling to it. We don't need to cling to it. And here's the surprise of it all. Sounds a little bit like what Jesus said, he who tries to save his life will lose it, but he who, tries to, who, he who loses his life will find it. The surprise of it all is when you put your faith in God and you're willing to not hold on to anything, you're willing to sort of unload and, and, and let it go, the mystery and beauty and surprising hope of it all is that God saves it. God saves it. God saves it. So here's the thing. If I were to just say to you, well, have faith in God and we don't know what the results are going to be and just... Just have faith anyway. That would be a God that is all sovereign, but not all loving or all good. Omnipotent, full of power, but not, what's the phrase you say, Gary? Not omnibeneficent or all loving, all good. 
And it's only in the Christian revelation of this God, even through the Old Testament, the Judeo-Jewish Christian understanding of God, it comes to its crystal clear focus, though, in Jesus, is this picture of a God who is not only sovereign over the storm, but loving enough to save. Powerful enough to be sovereign over the storm and loving enough to save. Stop and think about that. Only in Jesus do we see a God who's strong enough to be sovereign over the storm and loving enough to save us in the midst of it. That's powerful. That's the reason for this joyful hope. Verse 33, this chapter ends with a very odd scene. As the day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you've continued in suspense and without food. Ha! Huh, it's some storm. In suspense. They hadn't eaten in two weeks. I don't know. I think I could eat. I don't know. Having taken nothing, therefore I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. Now listen to this. And when he had said these things, he took bread... And giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. What does that sound like? Now, wait a minute. Who wrote Acts? Luke, the tradition says. Didn't Luke write some other book, like the prequel or something? Yes, the gospel according to Luke. Luke, volume one. (laughs) Three times in Luke's gospel, Luke says almost these exact phrases. And Jesus took bread, having given thanks to God, he blessed it and broke it and gave it to the people. Time one is when he's feeding the 5,000. Time two is when he's sitting at Passover with his disciples. Time three is after his resurrection when the disciples on the road to Emmaus that didn't recognize him, and then he, he takes the bread, blesses it, breaks it, gives it, and their eyes were opened. Now listen to this, what it says after Paul does this. It says in verse 38, and they all were encouraged. Any guesses what that Greek word is? The same word that he said to them twice earlier in this chapter when he says, be cheerful. Be cheerful. Be cheerful. Have faith in God. He's sovereign over the storm and loving enough to save. Okay, all right, Paul, all right, fine. And then it's at this Eucharistic moment, in this communion table moment, when they finally receive the bread that Paul has taken and blessed and broken and given to them. In that moment, like the disciples on the road to Emmaus, instead of their eyes being opened, these pagan sailors all of a sudden become cheerful. Something began to enter their hearts. There's a couple things I think we can see from this. One is that this is an interesting thing to do with a bunch of pagan sailors. <laughs> it's one, talk about open communion. I mean, it's one thing to invite disciples to this table and to use the Eucharistic formula, take, bless, break. It's quite a different thing for Luke to have Paul, and it would be Paul, wouldn't it? The guy who goes to the Gentiles, who eats with the unclean. It would be Paul, who's like, well, what's stopping us from having communion? I mean, I just told you to have, I just preached a great sermon, let's have communion. <laughs> Can I say to you that you will find yourselves in moments with people who do not yet believe in God, who are terrified 
of a world that seems like it's gone mad, of culture that seems like it's headed for the rocks, and you can stand up and say, have faith in God, come and take this bread, and you'll bless it, and you'll break it, and you'll speak of a Jesus who gave his life to save this world. That's what we're supposed to do. That's what we're supposed to be. We are like Paul on the ship. Paul's a prisoner. Guards don't normally let prisoners talk much less give this huge speech and give out instructions about what they should do. You may just find yourself in extraordinary moments because of the world we're living in, because of the days we're living in. And in those moments, what the world needs is not the picture of, well, you know, I just can't wait for God to zap all of you. But the world needs to see a God whose own body was broken and blessed, and given for them. The world needs to see that when they ran out of hope, when they've run out of hope, there was a God who came and did it all for them. There was Jesus who shed his blood. There was Jesus who upon the cross took on himself all the evil of the world, the full weight of our sins, Isaiah says. And as we bless and break this bread, we are speaking to the world about Jesus. And just maybe we're speaking to ourselves about Jesus as well. Which is why we come to the Lord's table every Sunday. It's why we gather, we end our gatherings every week like this. Because we believe the best way to respond to the word of the Lord is not to say, thanks God, I'll try to do better. But we say, God, without you, I would be dashed against the rock. We have no hope of being saved. But Jesus, it's you. Jesus, it's you. You know, let me tell you a little bit about two things. One, when this joyful conference begins to take root in you, I I suspect you'll find the ability to stay longer in difficult situations. You won't as easily jump ship. If you're like the sailors whose only reason for being on the ship was profit, you'd be tempted to jump ship. And actually, some of the verses I skipped, Paul caught some of the sailors trying to lower an escape boat and get out of there. And Paul busted them. It's kind of funny. But when you have this joyful confidence in God, it helps you not to jump ship. Last week, I told you a bit about the new life story, what happened five years ago. We talked a little bit even about how that was coming on the heels of something the year before And I don't know that I've ever said this to you, but I want to say this to you. The reason I'm still part of this church and this team is because I believe it's not over yet. I've had lots of people say, well, Glenn, when are you going to, you know, and I've thought through all of it. But there's something in my heart that I can't shake. So that glance, not time. And I'm not saying that anyone who's left has jumped ship. I'm not saying that at all. There are times to be sent. But in my case, had I got left, it would have been jumping ship. Because my mission was here with this ship. And I believe that, that there is more yet to come. And I think sometimes when you find yourself, you know, saying, well, I just need a, you know, I need a new this, I need new friends. I know those old friends are lousy, you know. Maybe you do need new friends. <laughs> Or maybe you need to find a deeper source of joyful confidence so that you can stay on the ship 
and be this voice of hope. Some of you, maybe you're working in very difficult work environments. You're like, dear God, why am I still working in this place? You know? Maybe you're Paul on that ship. Maybe you're Paul surrounded in that place and, and God has you there to stand up and say, be of good cheer. There is a Savior who is sovereign over all. And he gave his life for us. The second thing I want to say just practically about this. New Life Downtown, we began this summer our dinner groups, our meal groups. We launched again in the fall. How many of you are part of meal groups? And, and part of it, you can say loosely, like you've been once. You know? yeah. Great. Uh, you, you should, we, we should do more of that. And I know this season is difficult, but um, here's my long-term plan with this. You know what I would love? I would love that all over the city our, our New Life dinner groups are meeting. Let's say they meet twice a month. And then all of a sudden, maybe six months from now, maybe a year from now, all of a sudden they say, you know what? Instead of just twice a month with each other, why don't once a month we throw a big party and invite all our unsaved friends, like community night, like Matt and Brian and Bryce just did. Why don't we invite all of our like, un- unsaved you know, workers and neighbors and, and just have this big party where we take the bread, having given thanks, bless it, break it, and give it to them. What if? The fellowship that is among Christians spills out to include a wider group of people around the table. Isn't that the picture of the whole book of Acts? It starts out with 12, actually 11. Yikes. Then they add this 12. And then by the end, we've got pagan sailors sitting at this Eucharistic table. Because that's just what Jesus does. Amen? Let's pray as we come to the table this morning. Would you take a moment... And just begin in your own hearts to quietly confess. And, and confession is, is, is not in the first place about beating yourself up. Confession really is about admitting the end of the road. <laughs> of saying, God, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm like Paul and Luke saying we've lost all hope. I, I don't know how to change. I don't know what to do. Just begin to quietly where you are, begin to confess and say, God, I need you. God, forgive me for trying on my own. God, forgive me for trusting in my strength. God, forgive me for trusting in myself. And let's begin to cry out to God and then we'll pray this prayer of confession together.